Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. I am so honored today to have Tony Roberts sitting here with me, who has been a true inspiration for me in my life and the choices that I've made over the years as somebody who's trying to design a life for himself in a third world country, who has had some successes and some failures and is now trying to reinvent himself in an area that was never ever on the radar and never gifted in. There was nothing in me that ever said that I was going to be able to move my life online and and try to make a business online. And Tony doesn't know this, but Tony one day when I got out of the surf, I asked Tony, and Tony's somebody who doesn't mince his words. Tony speaks very clearly. And sometimes for some people who don't have maybe the thick skin, he can be a little harsh and blunt. But I love that about him. For me, it was just like ringing loud and clear. When I asked him, I said, Tony, you know, I'm not happy with my surfing. I mean, I just, I look at myself and some of the photos you've been taking. I mean, I'm unhappy with the way I look. And he said, you know what, Chapin? That's your style. That's you, brother. Like you have to at some point come to understand that this is, you're going to carry that style with you. Now you can, you can work on certain things like your technique. And I said, interesting, a light bulb goes off technique. There must be something flawed in my technique. And then a few years later, folks, I started surf progression techniques because I went home every day after Tony said that. And I analyzed every single professional and every single video that I was watching at that point in my surfing career. And I started breaking down the fundamentals of what was going on. And that was the birth of surf progression techniques, which Tony Roberts doesn't know. But I'd like to welcome into the show. Tony, thank you for joining me. It's so honored to have you, brother. Right on. Stoked. <laughs> yeah, that was a long introduction, but I was just, I needed to get that off my chest because you didn't know that. And it, it, it has been. I mean, this folks, what I just mentioned, like I'm moving my life online because I really would like to be location independent from work. Like Tony has been for his whole career. He's been able to float around the world and chase and design a life of living in places and doing things that I think he's always been very passionate about. And for me, it's just a true inspiration. So. Maybe, Tony, if we can just start, I know you have a very intricate, complicated story, but maybe we could just kind of start with where you grew up because you grew up in a pretty hardcore environment as far as surf culture goes. So can you tell us where you grew up? Absolutely. Uh, thanks for that introduction and really stoked to be here tonight with you. Um, I'm from Santa Cruz, California, uh, east side. Had a really amazing childhood. It grew up in the 70s. It wasn't really any locks on the doors and... Kids were kind of able to run rampant. Our parents were hippies, and uh, punk rock was just coming into play. We had all the best reggae bands in the world always playing live. Um, the surf scene, the skate culture, it all is kind of converging in this, what to us was just normal life. So I grew up in, a, as you said, a pretty hardcore place, and uh, I think that it's given me everything I have today. Right. I mean, when we say hardcore, for any folks who aren't surfers out there, like, Santa Cruz culture is divided by East and West. Is that correct, Tony? Yes. And everyone reps the side of Santa Cruz they come from to the core. 
Well, that correct as well. That was definitely how it was, okay. without a doubt. Um, in the seventies and in the eighties, we changed all that. Okay. All the best surfers, we would all get together and we started traveling the world together, Africa, Asia, Australia, Hawaii. And so when we came back to Santa Cruz, we were like, this is ridiculous. Not only are we going to surf on both sides of town, we're going to surf north of town and south of town and all those barriers that used to exist, we're going to break down no matter what it takes. And so we would go, I would shoot photos, all these places, and you could imagine the uh, fights and, and all the altercations that occurred from that. Um, you know, there was a lot of uh, violence and and uh, things broken and cops. And so by the end of the 90s, uh, it was all dead. You know, the only east side, west side that occurred was still kind of more in the gang culture. And as far as surfing goes, we broke it down. And to this day, the best surfers surf on both sides of town. So um, I'm very proud of that. Can you t describe like the hierarchy and how you where you fell into that hierarchy within the surf scene in Santa Cruz? Like, sure, it's it's very defined there. That's the cool thing. There's a totem pole, a pecking order, and the lineup. And I just like everyone else was a snot nosed grom that got my head dunked and um, head put in the toilet for talking too much and uh, you know punched in the face by grown men. Uh, it was a different time. There was no lawsuits and surfing, you know, it was kind of more like an outcast kind of sport. It wasn't a cool like subculture back then. And so as a kid, um, you had to work your way up from the inside bowl, you know, just getting scraps. And then as you got older throughout the years and got better at surfing and wanted your place in the lineup um, by showing respect. And then by showing respect, you would get respect. And then by the time you're like 20 years old, you're out there getting set waves with those guys, which is a very special accomplishment for a kid from either side of town. Right on, right on. And then as you kind of transitioned into the the video siding, because Tony Roberts is a professional editor, videographer, photographer that he's made his career with, and you started developing that side of your um, your skill set. Did did you get flack for that? Of course, that was in a time and when you didn't like bring cameras to the beach, you didn't, uh, you know, mention names of spots, which I never did. Also, I was always a kind of a proponent against that end of it. But what I always wanted to do was showcase the incredible athleticism that my friends were displaying on a daily basis, surfing and skateboarding. Mm -hmm. And, uh, for me, the photography, film into things was natural because that was my hobby as a kid. I always captured what my friends were doing on their skateboard, on their surfboard, and would show it first in my garage, then I would rent out local Grange Halls, projector, homemade sound systems. Um, I've been putting on music and, and showing images of surfing since I was a child. And that was TR Productions. Um, so basically, there wasn't really any transition because that's just what I did. I made Super 8 films when I was a Grom. Filming my friends, skateboarding, surfing, punk rock shows, reggae parties in the park, whatever was going on, I was filming it. And then I would make these movies and show them in my garage and all the groms would come up and then started renting out Grange Halls. It got bigger and bigger and that turned into TR production. So that's kind of how the transition was. And people were accepting of that. I mean, I know you had took flack, but I mean, for being Santa Cruz and I mean, I lived there six months and this was in 2000, 2000, like it was still hardcore and any person who deviated a little bit from the line that had been drawn by the older generation was punished. Yeah. So my question is like, were you punished for deviating from that line that was anti-videography, anti 
that? Absolutely not. I was celebrated. Really? Because my whole world changed when I was 12 years old, getting out of the water of the hook, and Mike Cruteau approached me and said, do you want to be sponsored? I had a homemade twin fin I shaped with my buddy Clark Brigham. I had a ripped up dive wetsuit that I'd stitched back together with dental floss I got at the flea market. And this guy just basically opened a surf shop in a factory up the street on 41st Avenue called International Waters. And it was my rags to riches story. That day I ordered custom Alita suits with checkerboard panels and camouflage legs and orange arms and quiver of surfboards and any kind of airbrush. And that's kind of when I developed my style of bright colors and all that, which has never, ever changed. So International Waters team was Vince Collier, Nacho, Richard Schmidt, all the gnarliest West Side guys. And I was this East Side Grom that just got put on the team. So all of a sudden, I got my ass kicked from going from the hook to Pleasure Point, okay, in high school, like two blocks over. All of a sudden, I could go surf the Ave with the boys in the lane. So I got the carte blanche to hang out with the West Siders when I was like 13 years old. Okay. So all of a sudden, Crutoa put me on the team with those guys. I'm surfing all the contests up and down the West Coast. I'm skating at the same time in the Big Ten series, skate park series in Northern California. So I was capturing all, all the things I was doing. And since I was uh, all the boys were my kind of like babysitter, father figure guys, they were stoked on what I was doing. They'd come to my shows. That's you know, they'd bring their nephews and nieces. And You're my shows. In. I was You're grandfathered in. in. Yeah, I see. And I mean, to be fair, there's not a lot. There are, there are a few and, and quite a few maybe. I'm, I've been out of the, I'm not even in the game, but like surfers of your caliber, like Tony Roberts rips and he's also a professional photographer. He captures amazing photographs. That always doesn't go hand in hand. There's not a lot of professional photographers who also can go out and display that sort of surf technique and, and your ability and skating as well. So how has that really played into Choosing, I mean, because you could have been pro. I mean, you could have taken that to a a level where you got paid, and you could have stuck with that. Like, what happened? You know, why why can why choose the photography thing? My intrinsic work ethic that was so strong as a kid. How I was able to go to Australia the second I graduated high school on money I saved up. All those things. Basically, when I hit that point when I was graduated high school, I saw my angle. None of the surfers skater were photographers and none of the photographers were surfers or skaters. I knew that would be my one angle because really angles, different definition of the word. My main goals were to get new angles in the water that I was able to get on the concrete. I'd practice escape photography and I wanted to take it to the water and get those same angles. And I knew, I knew I would be the one to do that because I could do the sport that I was shooting it wasn't until a little later in life when I thought about making money and a career that I dedicated myself to that. So at that point in time, I thought I was going to be a pro skater, pro surfer. But when the real world hit and I was 18 years old and I was out of the house and I had to make money, I said, I'm going to make surf films and shoot surf photos because I'm going to be in my own category. Because really, I never saw anybody who could really do those sports that I was shooting well. But Here's the deal. It's like all the interviews about me, all the, the features on me that have ever come out are about my photography. And the most important part of my story is my surfing, my skateboard, mm -hmm. because that's what everything else comes from. And that my level, 
because I didn't surf from 20 to 30. So, you know, and inside of me was this pro surfer, pro skateboarder, mm-hmm. you know, that didn't do it mm-hmm. with all the best mm-hmm. guys in the world going to the best waves. And that fury in my mind of not being able to do it and knowing what I could do. Mm-hmm. And then at 30 years of age, going in whole hog and being able to truly explore my own abilities as a surfer and skateboarder. And when they emerged, they were way higher than I ever could have imagined. Mm-hmm. Because of shooting with Rat Boy and Nate Acker and Adam Rapogel on a day-to-day basis, and Tom Knox and mm-hmm. Eric Dressen and Christian Hasoy and Danny Way and Mike mm-hmm. Vallely and the athletes I used to work with, when I finally got my time in the sun, I could have never imagined the level that I would attain in my surfing. Especially because I didn't have examples in their 30s and 40s when I was a little kid. Because mm-hmm. airs didn't exist. But I've always surfed above the lip. So 30 years old, here I am, the best waves you could imagine in your wildest dreams, to your head, and the best boards you could ever dream of, and a hammock, and a beautiful chick. Just time to live and explore your own level. That was what it was all about. So from 30 to 40, my surfing level way surpassed what I ever could have dreamt of. Amen, brother. And all due to vegetarian diet, I've been vegetarian since I was 18 years old, yoga for the same amount of time, and knowing that I could do it, and exploring those those levels, those limits of myself. And so when I finally dedicated myself to my heart, to my true nature, my true values, what made me happy, surfing, and then the better you are at something, the more fun it is, man, like, being able to do things on a surfboard I never dreamt of before in, in perfect waves every day. Lord of mercy. Just a celebration of the essence of life itself. And then as I hit 40 and I had my kid and I had to segue back into the work chapter again, I knew I couldn't let the surfing and the skateboarding go astray. So I've kept that at the forefront of importance to me. And so now... I want to film every wave that I ride. I have my own videographer. Um, I want to celebrate that and share that with everybody at TR Surfing on Instagram. So I'm 52 years old and I'm still improving. And I love to surf in all the master's contests I can get in. The problem is ISA does most of them and I don't belong to any country. So I can't surf for the USA team. Although Ryan Simmons, the coach, I send my videos. I plead with them to put me on there. When I, when that chance becomes, I want in. Because I'm not going to surf for another country. I'm not Nicaraguan. I'm not Costa Rican. Hablo español bien perfecto y todo el mundo cree que estoy de aquí. Pero que va. I'm gringo. I'm from the United States. If I'm going to surf for another country, it's got to be the United States. So I want on. I surf in the Dominican Republic Open Masters Comp every year. It's the best open comp. The Puerto Ricans, the Brazilians, all the old guys that rip, that are frothed out like me, go there and we participate. We get it on every year. And I suggest all of you to check that out. It's Encuentro Surf Classic on Facebook. Anyone over 35 wants to do this, let's do this because it's the funnest contest of the year. Chapes, come on, buddy. Let's do this. You got to get in there. All right, brother.
Thanks, man. That was awesome. I really appreciate you bringing that up into the fold. Never want to overlook your surfing and skating ability and how it all played in. But if we can bring it now back full circle into, you know, you seeing the different angles and being able to apply your skills on a surfboard, on a skateboard into your capturing those photographs in those moments, I'd really appreciate it. Well, absolutely. That was how I was able to get those images. But as far as on the photographer end of things, I went to Hawaii every winter and got to know and hang out with all the other photographers and recognize that none of them surf hardly. Right. And so the way that surfing was changing at that point in time, airs were just coming out. And I went to Australia and I saw all the best juniors my age that I really wanted to see. And I was thinking to myself, these guys aren't even close to as progressive as my friends. And that also made me really want to dedicate myself to making the surf videos at that time, surf films and surf photos, because I had to capture this level that was going on. It was the revolution of modern surfing happening before my eyes that no one even knew about, that I didn't even recognize. Mm-hmm. I always thought Australia would be miles ahead of of Santa Cruz. And so when I was 18 years old, I went on my first trip. I went to Australia for six months. I came back to Santa Cruz. I was I really got to capture this. Okay. So that was kind of the cementing of your idea to like maybe bring to the forefront Santa Cruz and and, and your peers. And you were going to be that guy because you had obviously a good enough head on your shoulders to realize like maybe the surf thing wasn't going to pay you as well as the photography thing and the longevity of it was going to be there if you chose photography. Who who taught you how to shoot? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Um, yeah, there was a lot of great photographers from Santa Cruz before me that were huge influences. But they came from a different style of photography, which was the wave is the subject and the surfer is a detail. Really? And Yeah. And what I changed was I made the surfer the subject. Fisheye water shots where the guy's like throwing his tail above the lip and the wave's just a mere detail in the background. Like a skate photo. A skate, good skate photo, you've got to see where the guy's taking off from, where he's landing. But oftentimes a wide angle shot, he's filling the frame. Okay. So I started doing that in the water. But before that, when I was a young Grom, I was so blessed to be mentored and taught by Chris Klopf, Woody Woodworth, Bob Barber, I mean, we're talking legends of surf photography that I was just super blessed to grow up close to those guys. And then shortly thereafter, in Hawaii, got mentored by, taught by, and they all ended up hiring me, which was a huge honor because these guys don't get along with each other. Surf photographers are like, oh, they're weirdos, dude. They don't. But I was almost more like a surfer, skater kid with a weird contraption camera that I would build from mishmash parts from the flea market and MacGyver together. But, man, I got put on by Aaron Chang, Jeff Hornbaker, go down the line, like, all the best. The guys who I looked up to, Ted Grambeau, the best of the best. I would swim with these guys out at back door and out off the wall, which is a very tight pecking order also, and just be so respectful and then come up with my angles, which were different from theirs. And that's how I kind of got my foot in the door with those guys. And so becoming friends with those guys and, and learning from them gave me everything. I mean, that's like going to a university for a surf photographer. And I was the only one in my age group. There was no photographers my age. They're all like five to 10 years older than me. Mm-hmm. And like late 80s, mm-hmm. um, you know, North Shore, there wasn't any young kids doing it. 
because there was no digital. It was all film. Mm -hmm. So how many kids could pay for their film, their processing, have a movie camera? There was no video cameras. Mm -hmm. There was no digital. It was all film. So it was a totally different time. And that's what gave me everything today that I have. Right. I mean, how, how was that transition in the sense of like, when you did decide to make that change, that transition in the film photography and, and they were mentoring you and whatnot, like, were you scraping by? I mean, were you living on couches or were you getting paid straight off the bat and as, as a peer and equal to them? No, dude, I was macking. Like there ain't no act. Came out blazing. Surf industry was strong. I got hired as director of video at O'Neill. I made what ozone, age? um, shoot, 1988. 1988, there was five VHSs, I think, that came out that year, and this was the biggest one. And it had a soundtrack on IRS Records with Bad Brains, English Beat, Jane's Addiction, Red Hot Chili Peppers, all these bands that I picked. We were able to get all the music. It was the biggest movie. Uh, Gerlach finished second on the world tour that year, and the Santa Cruz guys were just popping through, and the surf industry was strong. And then that same year... I made Speed Freaks for Santa Cruz, which was the biggest skate video that came out. So I was making a lot of money. I was definitely not scraping by. That's incredible. And yeah, so you're now a made man within the industry. You're following the biggest pros, making at this point the the, the biggest premiere films within the surf industry. Um, I mean, this is, I guess, what your first real like real job. Would you say that? Well, no. My first real job was probably when I was 12 years old, dishwashing. Okay. Which segued into working at Pizza My Heart. I was delivery boy, uh, made pizzas, worked at the cashier, and uh, ended up running the place while I was doing my film music productions. And I'm doing my little productions, the music and the film, getting the whole town together at these events. A hundred kids would show up. I'd make a few thousand bucks. So I was a, quite a little entrepreneur. And I had my little staff of bros. Tim Ward would do all my logos, all my animation. Wharf Dog and the boys would be like unfolding chairs we would rent, cleaning up the the auditorium when we were done. I mean, we'd have punk rock bands playing, like people climbing in the windows. And it was an amazing time as a little kid. I mean, just so that entrepreneurial spirit carried me to this day to everything I've ever done business-wise. Right. Now, with the experience and exposure you had being a surfer and a photographer, you got to see the world a bit. Would you say that, you know, being on the road started to develop maybe a hunger to, to leave America and, and make life for yourself abroad? Um, Tony's lived in Central America for years and he's somebody who has mastered the art of entrepreneurship in Central America. And so it's, it's a fascinating tale where it's like, at what point did you say to yourself, like, this isn't for me anymore. You know, yes, you, you were still traveling a lot, and you, but home base was still California, Santa Cruz, I'm assuming, right? Absolutely. Amazing question, because herein lies the essence of all that is finding your true nature. Because to find your true nature, you have to cut through all these layers of bullshit that we were manipulated with all through our youth, and especially from the United States, all the barrage of stuff that we saw on TV and all the advertising and propaganda and all these different um, levels of value, quote unquote, I started traveling at a young age and got to see a lot of places. And still, it wasn't until I was 28 years old that I left the United States. I should have figured that out when I was like 16 years old. 
I mean, but left, left meaning like you like left to not come back. You yeah. traveled. You've been to Australia. You've been around the world. Yeah, I meant left for good. Left for good. Leave behind that life, that lifestyle, which isn't for a surfer, a guy who likes the tropics and depending on your values, you know, and what's important to you. If you're a surfer and you like the tropics, you're not going to live in California. But somehow I wasn't able to figure that out until I was 28 years old, which blows my mind because I was already traveling. But all the layers of bullshit that was put upon me, it was so hard to bust through that it took me that long to figure it out. So when I went to Indonesia, uh, late 80s, it was completely rural, undeveloped country with epic waves and nobody around with a vibrant party scene starting up in Kuta. But I stayed out in Bingen. I was the first foreigner to stay in the village. And I moved in there and I found my true nature. I was like, I'm just like these people. You know, I'm not like the people from California that I grew up with. As much as I am like these people. I thought maybe I was displaced, like that I grew up in the wrong place. Tell me what, what, tell me, tell me what brought that about. Like what made you see that? I was always somebody who would look at a stranger and say, Hey, how you doing? You know, just, and look them in the eyes. And in California, you'll get your ass kicked doing that. People don't like that. If you don't know someone, you don't say hi to someone on the street. And I had to learn how to not do that as the years went by. But my natural kind of friendly, like open nature would still creep out. And once in a while, I'd be somewhere and I'd, we'd lock eyes and I'd be like, hey, how you doing? And they'd be like, what are you looking at? You know, or whatever, you know, that whole type of thing of course. is not me. Yeah. But that is the normal, just for one example of like where we grew up. And those types of examples abound. It's just endless in the society that we're from. And then I went to these other societies, these other cultures where that stuff didn't exist. And all the stuff that was important to me was important to them. Nature, you know, like sitting there like kind of junior meteorologist style looking at the weather formations and determining the patterns and the waves and the tides and how it all fits together. And and that way discovering kind of the spiritual religious side of life because that was the only proof I ever saw of God. I never went to church or anything like that as a kid. So basically, I'd see thunder and lightning. I'm like, okay, well, that's God right there. And how does this all work together? So those were things that I learned organically on my own in Indonesia with the village pe- people, you know, like no roof on the house, walls, sleeping 10 people in one bed, stuff that I was completely not used to at all and finding my true nature there. And so when I went back to the United States, I was never the same. Let's talk about that because I brought that out in a few past episodes of, you know, the repatriation of people coming back to the States and and feeling a genuine disconnect from the society that they left and then coming back, as you said, with maybe your true nature, finding yourself. And, and how was that transition for you? And what did it feel like? If you could describe it. Oh, it's fascinating because I had the best of both worlds. I had this newfound bliss of this place where I could really be myself and be happy. Like Indo. Indo. The Bukit Peninsula. Surfing waves that I could never dreamt of in my youth. That I drew on my binders every day. With people that really accepted me as one of their own. You know, true love. Just unconditional love. You know? And then, with all the great things that California brings. The best food in the world. That amazing music scene. My friends, you know, family, all the things that are great. So that transition was almost like cheating. Because I would go to Indonesia for six months out of the year, come back, work, 
so that I could fund doing that because I didn't realize that that's six months of suffering that's unnecessary. I could have just made my way in Indo, been entrepreneurial there, but it was so ingrained in me that I had to work and I had to suffer to enjoy my free time that that's just what I did. I went back to the States and granted I had great work. You know, my film and video career was taking off. I was working as an editor, starting to do music videos and all this other stuff. But that's never been my passion. Surfing's my passion. Skateboarding's my passion. Surfing killer waves and making epic cement parks and skating them. That's my passion. All the cameras and music equipment and all that stuff, that's just a way to, to get to the surfing and the skateboarding. You know? A lot of people, they're like, oh, it's so great that you do what you're passionate about. I'm super thankful for the raddest job in the world. I'm super lucky. But it's not my passion at all. I never want to be standing on the beach with a camera. Unless it's like 35-foot Puerto Escondido. <laughs> I always want to be in the water doing it. You know? And so, basically, the, all these different kind of fragments of lessons in life and places you've been and how that all kind of trickles down into your own being and what makes you comfortable in your own skin, all you have to do is aim for the best possible formula for your own happiness. Start there and then work down. We're taught in the United States to start at the fucking bottom and work up. Start with full sufferation and then try to irk your way up to happiness. Mm-hmm. Dude, I can't believe how backwards it is. Mm-hmm. They got it totally sussed down here in the tropics. You know, down here, they know the most important thing Sunday is hang out with your family and kick it. You go to somebody's house, everyone's there, like 30 people, uncles, aunties, cousins, and they're all smiling, they're laughing. And if you're really fortunate enough to like share that moment with them and you're sitting there and I know you've been in this moment many times where everything stops and it's silence and you're sharing that moment with them and you think, this couldn't happen where I'm from. Someone always has to be saying something. Someone always has to be looking at something and here you are. Chickens running over your feet and no one's saying a word. And it's a huge group of people. And you look around and everyone's just shaking their head, smiling. Why? They made it, dude. That's success. They made it. They're with all their loved ones. They're happy. That's, that's the end game. And they got it totally figured out. And so why would you want to mess up that flow? Really? But like you said, for a lot of us, it takes even years of you having been in it, like you're traveling, you're, you found the flow, but still like you were coming back, like you found the flow and you're coming back to work in Santa Cruz and you're getting deeper. If I correct me if I'm wrong, but you're getting deep cause you're getting more successful. You're now shooting music videos. You're on the real world as a cameraman. Like you're the guy you've made it, dude. And so, you know, what changed? That's how gnarly the brainwashing is. It's just ingrained into us that, you could be on the world seeing that, feeling that vibe, and still not quite figure it out. Although what I described just a moment ago, like that moment of silence with all the people, I had to leave the United States and move here to be privileged enough to enjoy a moment like that with the locals, just like you did many times. That's not something you'll ever discover on vacation. But for me to cut through all that brainwashing I was 
as you said, hitting my stride in my career. So I was splitting my time between going straight up on the success ladder in the United States to finding my true nature in the tropics. So I think that flashpoint that you ask about happened when I was a cameraman on the first real world, the LA real world with Dominic, the Irish dude, John, the country Western singer. I mean, that thing was an experimental show that everybody working on it, we all thought that it was going to fail, that it didn't have a chance because it was so lame. And it was so lame that that was kind of the flashpoint for me where I'm like, it's come to this. And I was living in San Francisco at the time, editing music videos for Enough Said Production, shooting all the East Bay rap like type of uh, content and all this stuff. It was like, man, this world is crazy. Yet I already had this other part of myself, which was my true nature, that when I got to that stage, it was in the early 90s. I was turning just 30 years old. It was a big turning point in my life. And I said, you know what? I'm cutting the cord. No more. The main reason was because I wasn't surfing. And a surfer, a true surfer, if you're not surfing, you're not happy. And so I flipped it 180 degrees. I drove from Santa Cruz, California to Santa Cruz, Guanacaste, Costa Rica, my 79 Toyota 4x with all my belongings in the back alone and left the United States permanently for the last time, which was, as you can imagine, the most liberating thing ever. Why did you choose Santa Cruz, Guanacaste? Well, I discovered several of the best breaks there years before that, that I was just surfing with me and my friends. And it's this incredible coastline there that now is, you know, tourist destination and name spots. But I have them to myself, for my friends and I, for a few years. And I recognize this area of coastline where every single inch of the coast is a good surf spot, just like Santa Cruz, California. Hmm. Because most places in the world, you have a good surf spot. There's 10 miles of crappy coast with no waves, and then another spot, Santa Cruz, California, and Santa Cruz, Guanacaste both, every single millimeter of the coast is a perfect wave on its day. And they all work on different swell angles, wind directions. And so I started figuring it all swell angles. At that point in time, we had 976 surf facts. My buddy Forrest Folger had a satellite uh, telephone with hooked up to a fax machine, and we get the Sean Collins facts and started charting the, the swell angles, intervals, and making our logs of what waves were working, and we're able to surf those amazing waves to ourselves for years. What a trip, dude. So you had got your foot in the door because of your past with the, the surfers, the surf industry, being a photographer. That's how you discovered Guanacaste? Or did you really go there as a surfer the first time? I absolutely went there as a surfer to discover and explore, and uh, just with my skateboard, my backpack, my surfboard, and uh, stumbled upon a couple of the breaks that were known at the time and then started discovering from there and uh, went back every year and ended up moving there. Did you keep any foot in the door with the surf industry at this point? Or like had you been completely consumed by the, the Hollywood sort of real world scene and you just had your your surf career and surf photography career kind of put aside? Well, once again, really blessed. I kind of didn't know how I was going to pull it. I was literally driving south with all my stuff when Steve Zeldin called me and had just founded Transworld Surf magazine. And he had Steve Sherman on board as the photo editor and said, it's the perfect fit for you. He's like, 
he knows I used to shoot for Transworld Skateboarding for Thrasher Magazine. I had the skate background in my photography, but was more known at this point in my career as a surf photographer from the surfing magazine work. So I said, yeah, let's do this. So he put me on salary with Transworld Surf. So the first year of Transworld Surf Magazine, they would send two groups down to me for 10 days each. So 20 days out of each month, I was actually shooting. And so I had dozens and dozens and dozens of of well-known surfers come surf all the breaks in Guanacaste before they were known by anybody with just us. And those photos ended up on covers and spreads. And in that point in time, you could still keep the name of the spot out of the spotlight because there was no internet. There was no surf line hadn't taken hold. So I had this contract with Transworld Surf that they couldn't put even the name of the country. So all those photos came out back then. It didn't even say Costa Rica. And uh, so that's how I was able to make that transition. Oh, wow. Man, so you're making real money again. Now you're living in a third world country but making real money, shooting 20 days of the, the month, and then surfing the rest of the time. Definitely real money for this part of the world back then. I mean, Costa Rica is pretty expensive now. Right. But uh, in reality, surf magazines don't pay much. A good salary for a surf magazine, and I was making as good as a salary as you could make from a magazine, I imagine, still is not that lucrative. A surf photographer makes money from selling ads to companies, working for companies. And basically, you can't do that unless your name comes up through the editorial ranks. Back when there was actual magazines and print, Mm -hmm. all this stuff's out the window now. It's all interns doing everything. Mm -hmm. But back then, it was a process to becoming a well-paid photographer. You had to work your way up through the editorial ranks, which I did with Surfing Magazine. And that's how I was able to work for the companies. I see. So then did you have multiple salaries coming in from multiple companies because you were the guy in Central America? Or was it, were you always just contracted by one and that's how you made most of your money? No, I was kind of out the window, really, because California surf industry, if you're not bringing a dozen donuts and dropping them on the desk, you're pretty much barred. And I moved down here. People were like, I'm not going to help this guy out. He's living the dream. You know what I mean? And you get what you deserve. And that's part of playing the game back in the day. I don't know how it is now. It's like, like I said, pretty much interns now mm-hmm. shooting the photos and, and, you know, staff guys that don't really get broken off that much. So back in those days, that first year contract I had with Transworld Surf was my first year of living down here full time. And here I was working 20 days out of the month and you've seen me work. It's gnarly. Frantic. You're a workaholic. I mean, when surfers coming down and shoot with me, they'll probably never come shoot with me again because most pro surfers really don't want to work. If I'm not surfing and I'm shooting, I'm going to be shooting lifestyles, portraits, water shots, land shots, climbing trees. These days, drones. I mean, it's if it's work day with TR, it is on. Okay, and so I worked really hard for 20 days out of the month, and was here full time and got to see how little it took to actually live a quality life. So after that first year contract, I chose not to renew it and basically winged it and would shoot. Still had pro surfers calling me that wanted to come down and surf. At this point in time, the magazines, the surfers themselves would bring rolls of film down to me here. We would shoot the film. Then they would bring the film back to the United States and process it. Or I would go to the capital city process the film, and then FedEx the results to the magazine or the companies. So logistically, it was very different back then before digital. So 
there was a lot of work involved. I was selling like a sunglass ad here or a sportswear ad there. And what was that going for, if you don't mind me asking? Like, what would you sell one for? Anywhere from three to eight hundred dollars, okay. from a half-page color to like a two-page spread. And what was your cost of living back then, monthly? About four hundred dollars to live like a complete king. Okay. Anything I would want. Mm-hmm. So, when it comes to a successful, happy lifestyle, less is more. The more money you make, the more money you need. When I put my priorities in a good hammock, good surfboards, a good tent, and then set up my life to just surf, my life just bloomed like a flower. And I saw the important thing was my surfing and my health and just got super into yoga, super into surfing and made that my main priority because it went from teenage years surfing being my priority and work being my lower priority to little by little, the scale just went all the way up on the other side to when I hit 30 years old, I was unhappy, not stoked anymore. I went through a dark side of my life because I was in California, like in LA and doing all this commercial work and stuff that is just super unhealthy, like environment. And so when I made the flip the switch to come live down here, I just like took everything off one end of the scale and went boom and committed myself to surfing. Went by Xanadu's, got all these boards, and he's been like a huge, huge influence and inspiration for me my whole life. And he was always a huge facilitator of my career because Rat Boy, Nate Acker, like the best guys who I shot, all rode his boards. And so we would trade content for surfboards. And back then, I never even got to surf. I very rarely surfed in my 20s. And so I had all these boards I never even got to ride. So when I did the big move, and I stopped by his place in San Diego on the way down and was so excited, he was like, dude, what are you doing? You're throwing your life away. You know, don't do this, man. He's like, you're at the top of your game right now. And I'm like, no, man, I'm not happy. I want to surf. He goes, bro, but you can always surf. But because he's such a hard worker himself, you know, that he couldn't understand what I was doing. Mm -hmm. But those boards that I would get from him, you know, and then just devoting my life to surfing, oh my goodness, my life just changed for the best in so many ways. And I really was able to connect with my true nature that I discovered primarily the first time as a teenager in Indonesia and had lost thinking that Indonesia had changed because Going there every year, it changed so much that it broke my heart. I never wanted to go back mm-hmm. by like 2000. But what happened years later when in Central America, I started to go through those same sets of emotions, I realized it wasn't Indonesia. It was tea. It was you. I found myself because I found myself here also in Central America. Because you know what? The people, they're just like the people in the kampung, in the village, in Indonesia. The people in El Pueblo, here, it's the same, man. Mm-hmm. They have the same values, the same happiness that you and I strive for so greatly and have been blessed enough to experience having lived here. Mm-hmm. But you've also found the same sort of uh, development occur, especially in Santa Cruz area, Costa Rica, that you had observed in Bali where you found yourself. And how is that then relatable to your newfound self as that started to change around you, were you able to accept it and roll with it, or were you upset and pissed? 
Well, it's funny, the whole timeline of things, because all that stuff that changed is because of digital. Because of the internet, because of digital photography, that's what changed our whole world. You know, like, you were running a surf camp in the era when there was no internet. Mm-hmm. And so you were able to really run it in a roots fashion, the way that it should be run. But all that changed, it was all out the window. All of a sudden, your clients went from hardcore travelers to kind of office guys that are just taking a vacation with their buddies. And it's not the same animal at all. So, of course, the business model and every other detail needs to change. And you were, you were able to adapt and not necessarily judge it for changing. Well, the year of digital photography really taking place was the year my daughter was born. So all of a sudden, my whole game plan changed completely because now I'm a papa. I just went through all my 30s of just surfing in hammocks, tropics, living the dream, beautiful women and just easy living, to bam, I have a kid now. I'm a father. And whatever I do, I'm going to do an A-plus job at it. So I decided to rekindle my photography career. After photography being a very low priority in my life, to bringing it back up because it's really the main skill that I have. So is that when like Quicksilver came into the picture, when your daughter came into the picture? That year, the Quicksilver Crossing rolled into Nicaragua. And the Indies Trader was in town. And I said, I'm getting that job. I'm the perfect fit for this job. So I contacted Quicksilver, and they're like, get on here. So I got on the boat in San Juan del Sur, and ended up on the Indies Trader, on the Quicksilver Crossing as principal photographer for the next three years. That is absolutely insane. I didn't know that detail, dude. That's incredible. So for a surf photographer, that's like the ultimate prize for your career. And I was given that prize after leaving photography behind for 10 years and just surfing my balls off and building cement stuff to skate and just following my heart 100%, which every surfer needs to do at one point in their life. But once I had a kid, and then I got the best photography gig in the surf industry for the biggest company, I'm a lucky man, Chapes. I hear you, dude. And it seems that I've had this come up in a few past episodes with people who really are willing to just put it all out there in the sense that they walk out their door and just remain open to what could happen. No, no fear. Just like, let's just make this happen and see what comes of it. And it sounds like you've designed your life in that way as well, where you walked out, got in your truck, drove to Costa Rica, you made it work as no offense, like a selfish surfing man for 10 years. Then you have this beautiful young daughter come into your life who now represents your offspring and something you now have a purpose to kind of raise and develop in a, in a healthy, safe way that now shifts. But at the same time, like boom, Quicksilver Crossing comes into town right as this pivotal moment in your life is occurring, which is serendipitous and profound, if I may say. It's incredible. It's cosmic. Right. And on that first trip, I met Dale Dagger, who was our guide. Everywhere we went on the Quicksilver Crossing, there was an expat gringo guide who'd lived, who had moved there, who knew the ropes of where to go and whatnot. And so our first trip up the coast with Dale Dagger and Martin Daly or Mark Coleman, one of those great captains of the Indies Trader, or both of them. So Martin Daly, I think you told me a story once, and Martin Daly was there for that trip. Yeah. Dale Dagger. 
And so we stumbled upon Playa Colorado. Because Dale didn't want to bring you because he was one of those old school surfers who hush hush about all the spots, right? Even though he was your guide? Correct. You remember the story well. We got there and uh, he said, no, keep rolling. Let's go to Popoyo. Uh, nothing to see here. He already had a surf shack built by the river there, was surfing it by himself, bringing a few of his buddies there for years. And so Jimmy Rotherham and I were combing the coast in the tin boat with Chef Ben Haig. And then, may he rest in peace, we came across Colorado and we scored it. We anchored off Gigante for three months. Uh, and I tell you, Chapes, I couldn't get this beach out of my mind. So I ended up on the boat for the next three years, traveling all through the Caribbean, United States, all over the place. And I couldn't get this beach out of my mind. And my goal was, when I got off that boat, to move to Playa Colorado. So I sold my land in Costa Rica. I bought a lot here when Hacienda Iguana was just getting started. I bought the URL PlayaColorado.com, which I knew later in life would amount to something, which is now my business. So you have this new gig with the crossing. You know, it's a three-year deal. You've been here. You've discovered Colorado at this point because Dale at the time wasn't really willing to like divulge all these secrets to yeah. about Nicaragua and the spots that he found, which you kind of stumbled upon Colorado with Jimmy Rotherham. Mm -hmm. um, you know, with your new child now in Costa Rica, you're kind of back in the, the game as far as like a surf photographer because now you have responsibility to a young little lady. Um, you know, what was going through your mind and how, how were you making your next plan? What was your next move? Were you going to stick with the crossing? I mean, what was, what was going to happen? Well, I've always prided myself on being at the forefront of technology when it comes to cameras, computers, editing. I recognized early on that if you don't stay current on that stuff, you get left behind, especially because a lot of my contemporaries were film guys that fell the wayside, great photographers that weren't able to make that transition. So digital, digital photography was coming into play at this point in time. So when I left the Quicksilver Crossing, digital photography had just hit. I had my first digital camera. I came back up here to hit up Dale Dagger and find out what's going on with this Playa Colorado place because I want in. Okay, mm. so it was then that he confided in me that he actually had a house here all that time and that he tried to decoy us off the spot because for obvious reasons, he didn't want us to find out about it. Well, the rest is history and he blames us for this place blowing up. <laughs> but that would have happened anyways. Of course. It was a natural course of events. But at that point in time, we became really good friends. I was very privileged to be friends with Dale Dagger because he chooses his friends carefully. And he suggested to me shooting his clients, which it had never occurred to me because my entire career shooting film, you can't just shoot random surfers because the film's paid for and the processing is paid for by a magazine or a company. So I'm never going to be able to like shoot an average guy and his kids with the film because I don't have logistically enough film to do it. So that wasn't even a concept before. So when Dale said that to me, the funny thing is, at first, it didn't seem possible. And I said, I don't think I could do that. You know, I shoot pros. I don't think I could shoot, like, average surfers. He's like, no, of course you could. They'd really like it. And I think you'd like it. I think you'd feel good about what you're doing because you'd make people really happy. And I still didn't see the light. And I was like, uh, I don't know. He goes, look, how about if I give you X amount of money per month 
you give me X amount of photos for my website. And he's like a full website pioneer. Like Dagger was building websites on his own when there was like dial up, like <laughs> he taught himself HTML, dude. Crazy. Incredible. So we made this agreement and then there was a method to his madness. He knew I was going to love it, which I did and I do. Dale gave me my career, which is basically my main business now is shooting tourist surfers at Playa Colorado. And when I started doing that with Dale and then with you and others who were bringing people here to surf and explore, for the first time in my life, I felt like I had a noble career. Just seeing the smile on people's faces, the double hand handshakes, like, bro, you don't know when my family, my friends see these photos. They don't know what I do. You know, this is my passion. This is, and my style of photo is, you know, you see the guy's face, you know, you see the person's body, like texture and, you know, like moisture on their forehead. You know, my photography is most people don't have a surf photo like they can get if they shoot with me. And so the happiness on their face and the, the gratification was something that immediately now as a 40 year old man at that point of, of my life started to really make a big difference because I was questioning my place in the world. Like a big part of why I moved down there when I was 30 was just like surf photography at the time. It was so shallow and so unfulfilling. And even more so the, the commercial work that I was kind of segueing into, you know, no one cares. You're disposable. When I got that gig for Burnham Murray, MTV, the lady who did the hiring, she told me, she goes, Oh, just so you know, we hire and fire. Just so you know. And I was like, hire and fire? I'm like, what's that? <laughs> and she goes, hire and fire. Like every year we have a completely new staff. We fire everybody and then we start off fresh. She goes, that's why MTV is so cutting edge and so fresh. I was like, whoa, that's kind of bizarre. And so every day on the job, that was in the back of my mind. And everybody who I worked with there and everyone knew that there was this kind of, you know, not to mention you're in Hollywood, which is kind of a rebellious kind of and behind the scenes. It's all a bunch of rebels, really, you know, that that are just kind of conforming to that day's work. So it's just all this unhappiness kind of and, and bad energy. And Can we touch upon the, the digital era when, you know, you had this transition? Because this for me is fascinating because, I mean, Dale's, Dale's a genius in many ways. And it's curious because you would never guess that if you met him. But uh, for him to see that and you not, you know, is fascinating because I don't remember exactly when it, that, that phenomenon hit where it was cool to stand on a beach and take a photo of anybody. And all of a sudden that photographer is making $10, $20 a photo because they're so excited to just see themselves surf. And you said something really profoundly once you said, Chapes, you're not my market. You're the guy who thinks he's better than he is. And you're not going to buy my photos, dude. And I was just like, no way. You're so right. Like that's totally me. Cause I see myself as this guy who's during turns, like whatever. And then to see myself surf was just so humbling and disappointing. And you're right. I wasn't going to buy your photos, which is why you're so kind. You gave me a lot of them, but, um, that's true. And there's this whole market of people who at a certain level are ecstatic to get themselves shot. And you do such a good job of bringing out that like facial feature, the drops of water flying across their face as a spray from Colorado comes up over the lip. And like they're dropping into the most, as you've described also to me, the most picture perfect wave in the world. On a shitty day at Colorado, you as a professional photographer, or even an average one, can go out and get a cover shot. 
And I just like, it's flooring to me that that was brought to your attention by Dale Dagger. It's incredible. And that's a man who at the time was like 52 years old, I think, as old as I am now, mm. who saw the transition I was going through with my new baby daughter, you know, 40 year old man who is going to get off on that gratification of making people happy, which I was still just getting my head around that concept that I could even do. That never existed in my life as a surf photographer. Right. And I mean, I'm on this whole new train as well with like building online business and I follow these gurus and they all say, you know, the more people you can serve, the more successful you'll be one as a businessman, but also fulfilled as a businessman. And that is profound, my friend, which you stumbled upon with your surf photography standing on the beach and just passing out your waterproof cards like, hey, I'm TR, like I just got the sickest shot of you. Come check it out at my apartment. And his people were just started laying down the dollar bills, dude. Boom, 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 boom. That guy nailed it because you know how many people I talk to a day at Playa Colorado on a good day? You know how many people I make happy? And that quantity of people, it gives me this sense of alegría, mm -hmm. you know, felicidad. Mm -hmm. It's like Latin words sometimes are better than English words, but just immense happiness that Nowadays, it's blossomed into this melting pot of all these stoked, frothing tourists that really want to represent themselves on Instagram. You know, it's not hardcore surfers. It's guys that want to come down with their buddies, surf, have some fun, and get some photos. I'll be at the beach bar at sunset down here at Playa Colorado with 20, 30, 40 of those guys at the same moment, at the same time. The froth is off the scale. It's amazing. It's something I could have never imagined before. And like real surf travelers sometimes end up here and they're looking around just shaking their head disgusted. But me, it's a beautiful thing, bro. It I love beautiful. it. It is beautiful. And let's touch upon that because I think this is a good point to bring that into the fold. Like, what is your business? What is your enterprise now? What does Tony Roberts do? to make ends meet here and, and continue this, this dream that you have designed for yourself. As the digital age of photography has evolved, so has surf tourism. So naturally, all these people that I shoot and communicate with via email are always calling me up, asking for advice on where to stay, how to get what they need to be happy on their surf trip, whatever that might be, because they see me as a street-level person that has access to everything. So not long ago, I saw the opportunity to put all that together. So I formed surf, accommodation, transport, photo, video, food, chef. Dot com. <laughs> dot com. <laughs> Packages. Got it. Because there's all this demand. Good business is supply and demand. And with all the research I've done which is basically living in it from day one until now, being able to share the best of what is on offer with those who want to be on my level of surf trip. My level of surf trip is getting the best photos, the best video edit of yourself, staying at the best places, and getting the best of whatever else makes you happy. And uh, so as you, you can imagine, that. I've got quite a few happy clients and it grows every day.
So what are those entities that people could find you on social media, your website? Like if people wanted to come down and experience what you just described, you know, as a surfer or even just as a tourist, because this place, Iguana, um, has golf, they have horseback riding, they have everything you could really want as a, just a tourist in general. You know, where can they find you to get that type of information, that type of service? Absolutely. NikaSurfTrips.com or PlayaColorado.com. And then on Instagram, it's the same. Okay. At Playa Colorado, at Nika Surf Trips. Mm -hmm. I also just still do contract photography for individuals, for companies, for magazines. If you want the best, check out at Tony Roberts photo. And then my surfing and skateboarding, which is actually the most important part of this entire story <laughs> because I'm still progressing mm -hmm. in my mind and in my physical being at the sports I love to do is at PR surfing. Sick. But you have other enterprises as well because you have outfits in Costa Rica still. You have outfits in Jamaica. You have surf outfits around the globe at this point, right? Is that also where people could find you with what you just described or is that another entity in itself? So where you can find me is playacolorado.com and realsurftrips.com. For the Pacific months, I've got these amazing packages set up for anything you might want. Accommodation, food, transport, photo, video in, in Nicaragua, in Costa Rica. And then during the winter months here, it's the best time for the Caribbean. And now I have real surf trips set up in Dominican Republic and Jamaica. So, which actually have year round waves as well. So I've got my staff set up in all those places ready to host your dream surf trip. That's awesome. And then like I, I brought into other episodes too the, the idea that, you know, there's people out there who, might want to do this and the steps they might need to take to do this. And with your knowledge of the environment and the area, you know, I know you've bought and sold tons of real estate in Central America in general. Um, you know, what kind of advice could you give to somebody who's thinking about making this move, this transition and the steps they might need to go through? Or even, I mean, maybe they can just contact you and you, you could guide them by hand. I would be absolutely more than happy to. Uh, my email is tr at playacolorado.com. But the most profound advice I could give to everybody, I mean, it's pretty cliche and basic, but follow your heart. You know, your heart doesn't want to be sitting in a cubicle 40 hours a week, sitting in traffic afterwards. The fact of the matter is we really can live our dream. And I'll bet a lot of your wives and kids would love it even more than you could imagine. There's all these obstacles that are put in our mind of why we can't do it. Think of why you can do it. Because I had a buddy, he goes, man, you're so lucky. And I'm like, lucky? I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, oh, man, your life, everything you have down here. I go, dude, I did this with from nothing. You've got a three-car garage with five killer rigs, and you've got, like, this huge mansion and this crazy job that you're trying to, like, pay all the bills for and everything. If you liquidated all this, you wouldn't be a plumbing contractor in the East Bay, you would own your plumbing contractor business here and you'd be the first one. And you'd have all these hardworking local dudes as your staff. And you'd be surfing all day long, three times a day, checking in on your jobs here and there, cashing the checks, bro. 
And that's just one example. Pretty much every one of you guys out there listening to this, whatever job you do there, you can do here. And you'll be the OG. You'll be the first guy to have your, you know, uh, kite making factory or whatever the heck it is that you guys do out there. Here, it's wide open. It's, it's totally open for entrepreneurs. If your values and happiness are surfing, being in the tropics, enjoying nature, and that's what makes you happy, imagine how happy you're going to be. And all those other details, hey, you can't go to Target and buy a freaking Gillette razor today. You know what, bro? It's worth it. You can't go to that Thai restaurant you love. Well, guess what? Now you know how to cook Thai food. You know, hey, your shoes, like the heel came off and you have an important meeting to go to. Well, guess what? You learn how to take some gum out of the bark of a tree and like glue it back together. It's pretty cool stuff. And so my advice to you is if you are the type of person that loves that tropical surfing lifestyle that you enjoyed on your vacation, just go for it, bro. Whole hog. Now, it's not for everybody. And it's hard. I mean, it, it is hard. Hog. This is a, this is a, a really difficult environment to make. And as we talked about pre-show, I mean, we see people come and burn out within a month, two months because these environments don't have the same social norms, checks and balances that you get back in wherever you came from. People here don't necessarily care if you wake up and you start drinking, do drugs. And it's definitely, I think, uh, Something I like to bring into the episode where it's like, yeah, come, come whole hog wanting to live the dream, but know that there are things here that you're going to have to overcome as well that are extremely difficult. No, that's a fact. And it depends on your personality type. And of course, your financial status. Mm-hmm. Like the guy I'm talking about, he would be so stoked. And because he's got the money he has, he would have no problems at all. And those social barriers and all that type of stuff, that's minor. He wants to surf. Mm-hmm. And like you, your family, your life's going through the roof, buddy. And and I can't stress that enough. Follow your heart. Right. Now it's not for everybody. If you're a materialistic person and it's more important to you to have those creature comforts, don't even think about moving down here. You're not cut out for it. There's bugs. There's there's dust. You know. There's wind. There's stuff that you know. It's nature. And it takes yeah. a while to get things done. I mean, things don't happen overnight. You know. You're your car breaks down, your AC goes out, like to get a repairman out here to fix it could take a day or two. You know, it, the power's not always on. Like there are things that just don't happen the same way that we're used to in the Western world. That's right. You know, and, and for someone who surfs three sessions a day, they're fucking laughing at that. Right. And for someone who doesn't care about surfing three times a day and they're like more worried about like what happened on CNN, then they're not going to be stoked. It's not for them, you know, but. It is for those of us, we have so many friends, you know, that just can't cut that umbilical cord because mm-hmm. of all the brainwashing mm-hmm. that would be so stoked here. Right. And then those that do it and are stoked, those that do it that aren't stoked, that aren't cut out for it, it's wide open. One more thing I'd like to bring in before we kind of close up. You know, you're, you're a single dad. You're raising a adolescent young woman who's beautiful, by the way, and smart, speaks two languages and is adapting amazingly because I believe your ex-wife is uh, Costa Rican. Yeah. Her mother is Costa Rican. Yeah. And you're raising her now in Nicaragua and, and she's very happy and adjusting. So, it, you know, you're an, you're an example of somebody who, who can raise a family here and, and do it in a very healthy way. 
And I think I, that's a beautiful thing. And I admire that as far as like the logistics of it, you know, the healthcare, the things that I think most parents worry about education, you know, what's that like for you? It's amazing because she goes to a public school and then she gets private English lessons, uh, Taekwondo class. Um, we have our yoga practice that we do. Um, so she's getting the social integration from the public school and then the extracurricular stuff uh, that I provide and that she's interested in. Healthcare in this part of the world is excellent and you can pay for it out of your pocket. You go to a private clinic, it's between $30 to $50 a visit or you can have social medicine, which is free, but you have to wait in long lines. So we go to the Super Styly clinic that's like less than $100 for Whatever you need. Whatever you need. Usually about $20. And caring individuals that were educated in the States or in a promitable, promitable? What the fuck is that? <laughs> promitable? <laughs> They're being cared for by people that are well-educated and that actually care. And, and as far as her, her social scene, she's got a lot of friends that she gets to engage with and, and you feel like as far as, cause you've seen both sides. You've seen the Western way of doing things and now you've been here long enough and you've seen the way they do things here. You feel like she's getting that standard of socialization, education that, you know, if, she, if whatever happens, you have to take her back to the States and plug her into the system back there. She's going to be able to like make ends meet and like be, become a functioning citizen, if you will. Absolutely. Um, I think that she's learning all the best that she would learn in the States with a lot more real world skills here. She will have the world in the palm of her hands. She has a U.S. passport. She'll be able to go wherever she wants. But I truly believe that she'll never want to live in the United States because we go there every year and she loves going to Knott's Berry Farm and loves seeing all her friends and, and all that stuff. But she always comes back here and says, wow, Poppy, we're so lucky to live here and look at this beautiful beach. And she loves surfing and she really has it all. It's nice that you can give her that like contrast of environments where she does get to experience the differences and, and can recognize it, you know, as, you know, that's nice, but this is where I feel most at home. And, you know, Tony, this has been just such an enlightening, profound conversation. Thank you for taking the time to sit here with me. It's been a pleasure sitting and talking to you. Is there anything else you want to add and summarize with? Are you, are you happy? Blessed love and respect. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspires you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.